Welcome to the American Society of Pediatric Hematology Oncology podcast, known as the ASPOcast. This six-part series, The Road to Clinician Well-Being, will focus on various issues related to clinician wellness. Hello to the ASPO community. This is Deborah Zabladil, and I am happy to be here with another episode of the fall podcast series, The Road to Clinician Wellbeing. This particular episode is on physician burnout and mental health. And I am so pleased to introduce and welcome Dr. Margaret Ray, who is a psychologist with UC Davis and focuses most of her work and attention on the well-being of clinicians in different aspects of healthcare. Is that correct, Dr. Ray? That's right. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I address well-being across the continuum of healthcare providers, starting with our nursing students, medical students, residents, fellows, and then our faculty. Since you look at all of these different functional areas in healthcare, do you find that the setting makes a difference? And I don't mean one necessarily health system to the next, but if they're in behavioral health versus cancer care versus long-term care, is there any difference in the level of well-being related to that type of a setting? Yeah, that's an interesting question. There certainly is data around the concept of burnout, that different specialties have different rates of burnout. And people are studying that and trying to understand it. And I don't think we have a great answer yet about why certain specialties have greater levels of burnout than other. I mean, Mm -hmm. we can make some hypotheses about the hours worked and the strain, but a lot of it doesn't make sense in terms of, you know, for example... I think it's the last big study, urology, I think was number one up there in terms of burnout. And, you know, everyone was like, wait a minute, they make so much money and they, you know, have a lot more control over their time. So there's interesting, interesting conversations and explorations need to be done to understand that. And I think that a lot of it has to do with, yes, specialty, but also the culture, right? And so you might work in a particular one inpatient setting versus another I don't know if it's equal, right? So you Mm -hmm. might be in a hospital where there's resources and a lot of care and attention around the well-being of providers. And then another, there may not be. I mean, certainly resources. I mean, we've certainly seen that in COVID, that resource-poor institutions had struggled deeply, even though they were providing equivalent sort of care for the patients. So we can't ignore that piece of the story. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for that. So if we can talk maybe for a minute about pre-COVID versus post-COVID world, what would you say sort of the state of the state of physician burnout and mental health was prior to January 2020? How would you describe what was going on and the environment? You know, I think we still have prior pre-COVID, I guess we'll be saying that a lot, won't we? But pre-COVID, I think our rates of of burnout were still sort of steady, you know, averaging around 50% of providers. And though at the same time, I think we're in an exciting place in terms of changing that landscape, right? There's so much discussion, research on what's going on for healthcare providers. And I think where we're seeing the shift, which is starting at the top with leadership, right? With the C-suite down. That's a conversation that's being had at the highest level of the organizations. Now we are getting more and more chief wellness officers at our institutions and in our healthcare systems. Someone looking over well-being, right? Someone measuring it. Someone saying we need interventions around it. And at the same time, 
I'm hopeful that one of the things that will add to a helpful conversation around clinician burnout and mental health actually will be from COVID, right? Because we have had to stop and say the well-being and mental health of our healthcare providers is key and we must care for them, right? And how are we going to do that? And we've already seen changes that I hope will be sustained after COVID, which is more emphasis on one peer support, which has been a national conversation. I mean, it was existed before COVID, but you know, more institutions are adopting a model of peer support because of the COVID crisis, right? Many institutions have had to provide additional support around mental health treatment for our physicians and our healthcare providers. I hope that doesn't go away. Emergency lines that has, you know, now we have 24-7 lines that healthcare providers can access to talk to someone. These are changes that have been reactive to the COVID crisis, which I hope will not go away. I hope the stress level, of course, goes away, but I hope that the infrastructure that we've created in response will be a positive outgrowth. You had mentioned before the Stanford model that you talked about in the the recent webinar, and there were three areas, cultural wellness, which you just mentioned, the efficiency of practice, and then the personal resilience. And when you're talking about shortages of PPE, et cetera, that seems like it falls squarely under efficiency of practice, which can really impact well-being. And we saw it on the news. We saw it globally, didn't we? Yeah, that was an interesting, I think at the webinar, on one of, one of my slides, I had sort of a list of areas that individuals and in, in groups and teams could look at, say, okay, what about the efficiency of our practice, if you will, you know, where might we consider making a change, right? Whether, you know, in terms of team flow and workflow. And then on the other side of the slide, I had a list of items relevant to COVID to say, okay, what are the systems issues that have impacted the well-being of our healthcare providers? PP, obviously. Leadership communication was another key piece that we've seen as a crucial factor. And then some of the other issues that are interesting sort fall, both in terms of systems, but also culture. So are you going to care for me as a provider? Are you going to be concerned about my health? What about the health of my family? Are you going to provide a place for me to live if I've been infected or exposed, right? What about childcare? Those elements of our institution and our system in terms of caring for me. So, you know, that sort of borders on a little bit of culture versus also what's the infrastructure that exists for us. So here we are in late October, about to embark on November of 2020, and it's pretty clear that cases are rising across the United States and in certain areas of the country more than others. Do you think then that all of these lessons learned will be taken forward into the at least the early part of 2021 so that physicians do have a better sense of well-being, even though they are going through the stress of COVID? I certainly hope so. And I I think we're going to have to. I sit on a national committee for ACGME, the body that oversees, you know, residents and fellows. And national. So we, you know, we're on, I'm on in groups with people from New York in the Midwest. And we've been going ever since COVID started. I mean, it's terrible to have to learn from other people's suffering, but we have learned great important lessons from what went on and what didn't work well on the East Coast. And we're trying to adopt that and make that part of our 
current system, if you will. And I feel like we're going to hold on to that, certainly. And I, you know, as I said earlier, I hope it lasts beyond just dealing with the COVID crisis. In my institution, we have a huge push right now around peer support and trying to have an infrastructure in place for that. And that has actually taken off and I'm hoping will last. And interestingly enough, I think peer support has an important role, and I'm even bringing in peer support training for our medical students. Part of that, and that's something we've, it's not like it's a new conversation, but at our institution, we've never really found a model that works. But my concern right now is that peer support is key, especially in the context of this isolation. Our first year medical students have been, a majority of their time has been virtual. So here they started medical students, they're not interacting with each other except for on Zoom, right? And so much of the support one gets and validation and connection, you know, they're missing. So we worry about that. We worry about that with our interns who started training at the beginning of COVID. So, you know, really wanting to cast a broad net in terms of experimenting with ways to connect them with each other, with us, all of that. That's great. It's really good to hear. When you mentioned your work with ACGME and learning from, you know, the East Coast practices that can be put into place on the West Coast, do you think health systems are finding a way to learn from each other at the system level? And how is that taking place? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I can, you know, even from the training level, so the GME, the graduate medical education level, I'm on a committee with people who all deal with well-being, right? But there's a separate committee for our deans and DIOs, meaning the ones that run the the residencies who have been going and meeting in parallel when we're meeting, right? So learning from each other. And what's very interesting is bringing in some conversations from the military, what can we learn from how military organizations get ready for a crisis? And it's interesting because it, we could spend a long time with debating whether we should be discussing healthcare using military models, because some right. clinicians don't like that, you know, going into battle, arming yourself, getting ready. And at the same time, other people say, wait, that's what it feels like. And we need to be prepared. Now, certainly from a mental health perspective, what we are concerned about, one of the many things you know, using the sort of the, the military model is the post-traumatic response that some of the providers potentially will develop experience in response to what they went through in COVID. So what we're trying to do is learn from that if we can, as we prepare, unfortunately, potentially for another surge across the nation. And so now there's a, interesting conversations about trauma-informed care you know, for our providers who have been in the front lines around COVID. Have you seen traces of PTSD yet, or do you think it's forthcoming in those providers? I think it's forthcoming. It's a great question in the sense of, I would only imagine, and I am, this is just me. Okay. So let me be clear on that is if you were a provider in New York, we all saw what that was like, right? And now you're getting, now I woke up this morning as you did too, look at the number of rates going up, right? So if I were that provider, I would imagine I could be getting triggered to use a little trauma language for a minute. Like, oh my gosh, is it going to happen again? Are we ready? Is the landscape going to be different? Are we better prepared? I would imagine that for some, that's the way, you know, they would be having that response. Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned before, and I know you mentioned this in the webinar as well, that 50% of physicians, according to studies, experience burnout or are experiencing burnout at any given time. How do we get that 
figure? Where does that come from? Are they doing self-assessments? Are clinicians doing self-assessments? Are they being assessed through folks like you or through the wellness department? So how do we know that 50% are and 50% aren't? That's a great question. I mean, those numbers, so, you know, the numbers are 40 to 60%. So I grabbed 50, right? Yeah. And that's from the literature. And we could spend a long time because there's been some interesting articles about how do we measure burnout. The Moslock, which is sort of the original number one assessment tool for burnout, has been used across many studies. There's even semi-recent study is saying that we can just take two items of the Moslock and measure. So a lot of studies are using that. You know, so it's a self-report tool for sure, sure. but sure. it's a tool. It's not just, oh, I think my physicians are burnt out, but they're measuring, right? right? Which is an interesting question where One of the things, even the AMA says, one of the first things we need to do from the C-suite is, okay, measure the well-being of your providers, figure out how they're doing. I'm a believer, like, let's not measure it unless we're going to do something with that number. We need to say, okay, what's going on? And what's important is, can we see change, right? Can we see change if we institute different programs or different workflow approaches, EMR, right? So that's, that's an area people are studying, right? If we give people an intervention around EMR, are we going to see decreases in burnout if they feel supported and get education on EMR and spend less time on EMR? You know, that's a very concrete example. Right. And do you find that in your work, do you hear that when clinicians are leaving um, a system or a practice, are they noting burnout as one of the reasons for doing that? Or is it more they're speaking in other terms, but you can somewhat assume that burnout is part of the equation, how does that manifest itself? Well, I think that's how the whole burnout world began. But two major factors that got everyone talking about burnout was people leaving practice, right? And people giving up. And then the other piece was patient satisfaction. Burned out physicians aren't a lot of fun to have be your provider, right. right? And impacted systems, you know, when you go to the clinic to see your primary care doc, and if you're waiting and your provider is not, you know, is cranky and not and distracted, all those things that define burnout, right? Not present, emotionally exhausted, that depersonalization that comes with burnout, right? I don't want that provider. I, I, you know, I can right. imagine they don't either, right? So, I'm quite certain that a lot of that's why people are leaving. And I think that organizations are understanding that, right? And and then I also wonder too, that we are at a place where people are making perhaps different choices than they would have made. There is a different conversation, right? It's not all about, I need to work a billion hours to be happy. That's not what makes me valuable. That's not what I value. You know, I'm hoping that our younger generation who are also making different decisions and about what they value, that we will see a change, but we still have to provide patient care. And we, right. you know, and so we will have to make a lot of changes around the systems in order to incorporate a change in culture. Right. Absolutely. That Thanks so much. This has been incredibly insightful. And I do have just a, a couple more questions before we wrap today. And one is when we talk about physician burnout and the 50% that are experiencing burnout, and I know it was noted that those who don't cite connection with colleagues as a reason that they don't feel the sense of burnout maybe that others do. The case of our COVID world right now, where we are more isolated than we've been, how do you see this happening in practice? How do you see these physicians 
connecting with colleagues in a way that helps them feel supported when time is of the essence and we have one crisis after another and we're more isolated? A couple layers to that question. I, I think that people who are in the hospital, frontline workers who are there, I think actually, and what the, and the conversations I've had with some is that actually that gives it a great deal of support because you're not isolated. You're doing your job together, right? And I think, for example, when we went to lockdown in March and majority of, of healthcare systems put a hold on regular treatments, right? Right. Elective surgeries, primary care visits were became virtual, if at all, right? That sort of thing. Those providers were home and a lot of our trainees were home. Initially, it was like, oh, yay. Then it, they became increasingly isolated, right? And it felt very disconnected. So I think our providers get a lot of support from each other when they are working together. And right. I think that another positive too, is that it, it, again, from the outgrowth of COVID, and I was just on a conference yesterday for the National Academy of Medicine about well-being and hearing what institutions are doing, very concrete steps. They had what were called wellness rounds, right? So they oh. would walk around the hospital checking in on people. There was a cart that came down the aisles of the hospital, you know, bringing snacks, right? We see you provider. We know you're struggling. We're here for you, right? So those very concrete steps. And it also brought people together, right? Yeah. At the same time, we are very concerned about the isolation. I mean, it's for all of us, not just our providers, but I think getting that connection. Now, another positive, I'm like, look at a lot of the positive of, of what we can grow from with COVID, right? right? And it's, yes. it's keeping me hopeful, all right? Yes. Another example, I just was talking to, I just did a grand rounds for a department at our hospital. It was on Zoom and yeah. it was packed. And I was like, I said to one of the physicians, I said, wow, I didn't never expected this many people. And you go, well, that's an outgrowth of COVID. We can get on if some of these people were logging on all around the hospital. They never would have shown up if they had to trek across to the auditorium. So right. it is actually bringing providers together, you know, not in the way we would love to be, but it's at least they're connecting and they're having conversations. And I heard from another department where they're having really rich rounds on Zoom that they never would have had, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're bringing in experts and having these great conversations. I've heard of some groups saying that they're bringing in physicians from overseas and surgeons from overseas to their grand rounds that they never could have brought in before right. to talk right. about a specific subject that they happen to be expertise in and, and that it is creating more access. So I think that is right. The silver lining perhaps. Right. And medical school. Let's talk about that just for a minute. You've touched on that and you've touched on helping folks understand how important connectivity is and, and supporting each other. Do you think that discussions around physician wellness are pretty well now inculcated into medical school curricula and conversation and all of that? Or do you feel that it still depends on the academic institution? How would you describe that? Absolutely. Schools are incorporating, and I want to cho choose my words carefully here, an attention to the well-being of, of students, right? And that we need to look at that. Now, medical schools are required by the governing body to have students have access to mental health services, right? So that's required. And some sort of vague programming around maintaining well-being. Now, what's an interesting piece of the conversation where a lot of medical schools are addressing is how much should we make mandatory? 
Some schools have created mandatory well-being curriculum. Some of them have gotten a lot of pushback from students, like they're seeing it actually as a burden. So we're all experimenting with different ways because you know, I'm a little biased. I think there's a sweet spot about between mandatory and not, because if I, we leave it up to people to show up at voluntary workshops around well-being, probably the same people who are really invested might show up. And then the others, we're losing them, right? They're going to be out studying or, or something like that. And then there's some schools are saying, okay, you, you have to do it, but you got to have a choice about what you attend. There's a lot of different models out there. My bias is I feel like the governing bodies around medical schools, which is the LCME, need to change their standards about well-being. And it should be addressing the learning environment and its impact on the well-being of our students, mm. right? In addition to providing some education around well-being, but I think the onus is on the institution to look at, you know, wait a minute, let's measure the well-being of our students and let's look at what elements of the learning environment are positively or negatively impacting well-being. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I know you mentioned it certainly impacts patient satisfaction. So again, there's sort of a business case around well-being as well. And yes. then I understand it also impacts patient outcomes to some extent. Yeah, there's you know, data about medical errors and, and right. burnout right? and yeah. professional behavior and burnout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Sure. Interesting. There's a lot of talk around the self-reflection piece the, you know, personal resilience as the Stanford model would call it. And then I think the self-reflection falls underneath that header for a very busy physician or clinician of any sort says, I am so busy. I have no time to work this into my day. How would you advise them? What's interesting. And I will answer that question, but I, what I want to highlight, which is interesting, one of the requirements by the ACGME require institutions to offer trainees a tool for self-reflection, for self-assessment. They don't require the residents to use it, but it's there, right? So it has to be available to them. Our institution has two options for them to to utilize. My struggle is how do I get them to do it, right? So I will even tell individuals, and when I meet with groups, I said, okay, I know this sounds contrary to the concept of, oh, pausing for self-reflection. I say set an alarm. So I think it's, developing a practice. You guys get up, you brush your teeth, hopefully wash your, whatever it might be. It's just, okay, I'm going to pause for this for a moment. I will tell people, especially individuals that I'm working with who I feel are struggling emotionally, set an alarm. When it goes off, pause. How am I doing? What do I need right now? Do I need connection? Do I need food? And slowly make it a practice, right? And that's seems sort of contrary to the concept of it, but I think it's we have to develop a pattern. And then what we need is our leaders. And this is what I talk a lot about. Our leaders need to model it. So if I'm an attending, a faculty member running a team at the hospital, when I walk in, I stop and go, okay, how's everyone doing? Let's all pause for a second. You know, just check in with yourself. Just model that, right? Just say, you know, what do you, before we go and we see the patients or we run what they say in medicine, we run the list who you saw last night, Let's stop and see how's everyone doing. Does anyone need to go get a something to drink? Go to the bathroom. The bar's really low in medicine. Sometimes, <laughs> okay, right. So, and I think we need to model it. Right. We need to pause and check in and how we're doing. Not just go, 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 go. 
Dr. Ray, I have one more question for you. What if you were to give the community listening who are going to be largely physicians dealing in certainly high stress situations, what would be one piece of advice you would like to impart that might be something that they could follow or think about as they leave this podcast today? Ooh, one thing. Oh gosh, I have to. Um... Or a couple. Uh, thank you for allowing me that. I'll start with one, and I am a psychologist, right? And I, so I think that the number one thing would be to not allow the stigma that has sometimes, or not sometimes, has been part of the medical culture around honest reflections around well-being, right, and mental health. Don't allow the stigma that accessing care means that I'm not good enough or I can't be a great physician. That's not the case. And that actually leads to really, really tragic and bad outcomes. So I say part of being a fabulous physician is knowing when you need to access resources. So that's what I would say. And don't let it be a barrier for yourself in terms of either needing to step out and take time, step out and access counseling, psychiatric services, even crisis services. And then at the same time, don't reinforce that in your trainees and your colleagues. Ask the questions. How are you doing? Can I be of support? Can I help you access resources? And don't stigmatize those who need and require resources to be well and to function fully as physicians. Great, great words of advice. I I have just one follow-up question to that, and that is, how much does it help if a physician discloses to other physicians that they have sought help? Do you think that gives other physicians sort of permission, you know, if you will, to feel like they can do the same? Absolutely. I'm I'm a big believer in that, right? That destigmatizing it. I mean, we're doing a lot of things here at my institution or trying to with, for example, I just facilitated a panel of faculty talking about their stories and challenges with wellness and mental health. And it was for our students and our trainees because I wanted them to hear from the faculty that, you know, you look at me and you think I got it going on and all's fine. No, I'm a human just like everyone else. And I've had my struggles and this is how I address them. And this is the kind of support I got. And these are the tools I now use to try to, to keep myself well. So absolutely. I think having those conversations are key and the more people can be open about it, the better. And we've seen an an incredible change in terms of medical boards, licensing boards are changing their requirements about what you need to reveal or endorse when you apply for licensure. A lot of states are lagging behind. Mm -hmm. California has done a great job. It went from a jillion questions to three, and it all is about current impairment and ability Mm. to function. Not like the older questions were, did you ever seek treatment for? Did you ever? Oh my gosh. That creates an enormous barrier for physicians to, to access care. So I, I hope we'll continue to see those changes more broadly across states. Thank you so much, Dr. Margaret Ray from UC Davis. Thank you for your time today. Really appreciate you talking with us on this really important topic. I think it's going to be very helpful for the ESPO community. So again, appreciate your time and your wisdom. Thank you for having me. This has been another installment of ASPOcast, the road to clinician well-being. To get more information on the American Society of Pediatric Hematology Oncology, please visit www.aspo.org. 
In addition to this podcast series, the most recent webinar on physician wellness can be found on the website under the Knowledge Center tab.